0: Welcome to Legal Tips, a podcast series from the Tort, Trial, and Insurance Practice section of the American Bar Association, also known as TIPS. As leaders in trial practice and issues of justice involving tort and insurance law, TIPS brings together plaintiffs, defense, corporate, and in house counsel to tackle issues confronting the legal profession.
1: Welcome to Legal Tips. I'm Jill Mariani the chair designee of the TIPS Government Law Committee and today's host. Legal TIPS is designed to present you with a balanced discussion of thought-provoking issues and suggest creative approaches and solutions to problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. A fair, impartial, and independent judiciary is indispensable to a free and democratic society. We all know that. And today's program will address some creative ways that the organized bar can assist the judiciary to preserve and promote judicial independence. And we're fortunate today to have two TIPS leaders, Peter Bennett of Portland, Maine, the retired chair of TIPS for the 2007 and 2008 year, and Richard Summergen of San Diego, a member of TIPS Council and the current liaison to the Standing Committee on Judicial Independence. Welcome, both of you.
0: Hi, Jill.
2: Hi, Jill.
1: Hi, Dick. Hi, Peter. Peter, you decided early on that one of the primary programs for your term as chair of the TIPS section would be a major event highlighting the issue of fair and partial courts. What made you make that commitment?
0: The year and a half leading up to becoming chair of the section, I took a look at the landscape to see what issues were out there that that hadn't been thoroughly addressed. And it dawned on me that while our section had done a lot in terms of promoting issues relevant to corporate counsel, relevant to the plaintiff's bar, relevant to insurance industry, uh, one of the areas where we really hadn't stepped up yet was on the topic of fair and impartial courts. And recognizing how important that issue is to our constituency, I decided to make that my primary issue to address during my year.
1: And in fact, in the fall of 2007, you organized a special two-and-a-half-hour program entitled Defending the Rule of Law in America, Countering Attacks on Our Judicial Institutions. And you brought together some amazing leaders uh, to, to, and dignitaries to talk about the attacks on the judiciary. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, one of the great things about the tort, trial, and insurance practice section and what makes us unique is that we bring together what we call the, the three-legged stool and that stool is the the plaintiff's bar, the defense bar, and industry. It's, we're the only national level bar association that, that brings those constituencies together. So what I decided to do was to try to create a program that brought together leaders from those constituencies uh, on a stage at the same time because that had never been done before. And actually, what we wound up producing was a program that included uh, Dennis Archer, who is a past president of the American Bar Association, uh, Mike Idson, who had just finished his year as president of the American Association for Justice, which is the plaintiff's bar. Uh, we had Vanita Banks, who is both uh, an industry attorney with Allstate and at the time was president of the National Bar Association. We had Doreen Dodson, who is a defense attorney and at the time was chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Judicial Independence, and uh, Chief Justice Fred Lewis, the Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court, since we were in his home state and because he himself has been subject to uh, various attacks in recent years because of controversial cases that have made their way through the Florida court system, such as Bush versus Gore and Uh, the uh, assisted suicide issue.
1: Peter, that was a very well-attended program. But for the people that weren't able to attend, is there a vehicle for hearing that program, or has anything been disseminated from that program? One
0: one of the outcomes of the program was the creation of two sets of materials. One set is a CD-ROM that is a compilation of uh, substantive material on the topic. And the other is a one-hour DVD that was co-produced by West uh, that is uh, a cut of the program. It's it's basically the best 60 to 75 minutes of, of the program that we presented.
1: Now, I believe that TIPS also formed a task force on fair and impartial courts somewhere in '07. Can you tell us about the mission of this committee or this task force?
0: Well, the original idea behind the big program that we did in Palm beach was to invigorate our members to go out and engage in a grassroots effort to start educating the public on these topics. And the creation of the materials was meant to aid in doing so. We took our magazine, the brief and did uh, an issue that was dedicated to the topic of fair and impartial courts. Uh, And so we needed to house the project somewhere within the section so that people who had an interest in the subject would pick up the ball and run with it. So that's how and why we created a task force to take everything that we did in the fall and carry it forward.
1: And what's being done to disseminate this information through the tips?
0: We've been trying to network through uh, our folks on the ground in various state and local bar associations. We have done outreach to state judiciaries in order to Uh, make the judiciary aware of our program. So they'll bring it back to their bar associations. We have contacted other uh, people who are interested. Uh, We've done some outreach through our website uh, and basically have tried to create some momentum to get people to go out and educate either the adult public or uh, children in schools.
1: Let's spend a little time now talking about the ABA's Standing Committee on Judicial Independence and some of its work, which some of it, they have some fascinating programs that are, that are contemplated. First of all, you are a member of this committee, I believe.
0: Yes, is that correct? that's correct.
1: What's the function of this committee?
0: The function of the Standing Committee on Judicial Independence is to oversee projects that are designed to help um, further the mission of fair and impartial courts in our society.
1: And Dick, you are the liaison now from TIPS to this committee.
2: Yes, I'm the newly appointed liaison to the committee for the um, Standing Committee on Judicial Independence. And what would, what's your role? My role is basically to be the TIPS um, voice in that particular Standing Committee and report back to the TIPS Council those matters in which we believe as a group, meaning the Tort and Insurance Practice Section, we can also uh, get involved with a, and um, have some input relative to some of the programs that Peter just mentioned.
1: Now, I understand that there is a summit that is being organized uh, through this committee. Can you tell us about that, Peter?
0: Well, uh, the summit is being organized by President Tommy Wells as an association activity. The uh, standing committee obviously has a a great interest in the summit. Uh, What what President Wells envisioned uh, was a project designed to help convince government and the public at large of the need to better finance our civil justice or actually our justice system in total uh, because judges are underpaid and, and the, the gap between what uh, would be considered fair pay and, and what judges are actually paid is, is growing uh, judicial resources uh, aren't keeping up, and in fact, are shrinking. And and some of the and and these are placing pressures on our courts and on our judiciary. They're actually in in some places starting to uh, cause a fairly significant rate of turnover in judges because a lot of judges can't afford to stay on the bench, uh, given the the pay that they receive. And so, what President Wells envisioned was a national summit, which will be held in early May in North Carolina, in Charlotte. Uh, And at the summit will be, uh, or or have been invited, a delegation uh, from each of the 50 states. Uh, The delegation of each state will be led by that state's chief justice. And then in the delegation are uh, hoped to be various leaders, such as Uh, the lead legislators in the state, uh, potentially a governor if the governor wanted to attend. Uh, But in essence, the association is providing funding uh, for a delegation of five individuals from each state to uh, attend this summit um, so that the issues, uh, beyond fair and impartial courts, the issue of funding of the judiciary will be thoroughly vetted.
1: I take it that this is a pretty much a closed session just to the delegates that have been invited it's not something that any ABA member can participate because of the nature of the the topics right
0: i i'm not sure you're right and i don't know the answer to that question
1: well if you if people can't attend either because they can't travel there or because they have to have limited number uh, of the audience do you know whether or not this is going to end up being uh, Recorded, or whether it's going to be reduced to some kind of report, wh- whatever comes out of this summit.
0: I don't know. I doubt it would be recorded. It it may be reduced to a report.
1: So, is it more like a brainstorming session,
0: or a... no? I think it's more educational. I, I think there'll be some brainstorming as part of it, but there's a most of it is educational pretty, for the pretty big educational component to try to demonstrate to the non judicial state leaders why this issue has become so important.
1: What are some of the other projects that are are um, being proposed by the committee?
0: Well, I can tell you what's already being worked on. Um, we have a, a great communications program. Uh, we have worked for years with a consultant named Margie Ellsberg uh, on putting together a program designed to teach lawyers how to communicate on the topic of fair and impartial courts in in order to convince uh, members of the public um, why this is such an important issue to our country. Uh, One of our more recent projects is a project on what I would call judicial indexing. We have uh, worked to come up with an assessment tool that measures the effectiveness of a state's judicial system uh, through, um, a very objective process that uh, draws in participation from members of bench and bar uh, and ultimately produces a, uh, what's in essence a a report card on how well uh, the state's judiciary functions. And then that can be used as a tool both to improve uh, the state's uh, court system as well as uh, to work with the state government uh, to find other ways to improve the system. Uh, our most recent and highest profile project is our involvement uh, as uh, as an amicus brief filer in the case at the Supreme Court called Caperton versus Massey. This is a, a case that came out of West Virginia, uh, and it involves uh, the issue of uh, when a judge ought or ought not to recuse him or herself. Uh, in this particular case, um, multiple justices on the West Virginia Supreme Court uh, were the recipients of some very targeted and significant contributions in their campaigns, uh, and a suggestion has been made that um, that either this biased them in their decision-making process or, at a minimum, created the perception of bias. Uh, and when those issues were presented um, the justice or justices that issue refuse to recuse.
1: Dick, what do you think are some of the particular ideas that TIPS can bring to
2: this committee? One of the things that I think TIPS um, will be instrumental in and has been through Peter's leadership when he undertook uh, the uh, his chairmanship and, and started a subcommittee um, and a task force on fair and impartial courts is to educate and have lawyers understand how they, they make such a huge determination as to how the public perceives judges. Uh, much too often when a lawyer loses their case, they're, uh, whether it be ego or otherwise, are apt to ju- blame the judge for the fact that the case was lost rather than the law and the facts of the case. And what happens, it's almost a domino's effect. A lawyer criticizes and or blames a judge because a case is lost, The public then thinks the judge was uh, uh, not prepared to be a fair and impartial um, um, uh, trier of fact. And that public perception then dominoes into what are probably some of the most vicious attacks on judges in our country today.
1: Do you think some of that is also fed by the media's perception on covering some of these
2: cases? I think so. I think, you know, uh, you know, you could always go back to uh, many of the cases that are uh, historic in that regard. Remember, uh, the OJ Simpson case and judge Lance Ito of, uh, Los Angeles. I mean, he became a rock star in some, um, some, um, in some way after the, th- that case ended, uh, too many of those, uh, judge shows that we see on TV during, uh, the soap opera times, uh, judge Judy, um, and the others, uh, that are similar, similarly situated, uh, that have TV shows have this perception that they are, um, pretty feisty up there. And uh, that also, I think, uh, uh, skews the the public's perception of really what happens in a courtroom and how justice is served.
1: Do you think that the public's main perception with judges is that they are not fair and balanced? Or do you think that they get the view that um, the judges are not um, educated enough to their issues? What are the categories that you think?
2: That's a, that's a great question. And I'd like to get Peter's uh, ideas too. But I think some of the perceptions that we hear uh, through the, the standing committee is is one of laziness that uh, judges are basically public servants that work eight to five and they don't put the time in to perhaps read the cases, read the law, read the motions that are pr- brought by the parties. Um, oftentimes, uh, when the public is in a courtroom, they'll find a judge being rude to the advocates, whether they be the judges or the improper uh uh, parties representing themselves, that rudeness then lends to um, an adverse perception of those judges. One of the things that uh, we deal with oftentimes is what we call hometowning issues, where a a lawyer that does not practice in a certain um, venue comes into that venue against a lawyer that perhaps is from that area. The judge knows that lawyer either through reputation or by contact in the fact that he's been in his courtroom before. And there's a perception of perhaps unfairness during that, what we call hometown issues. Those are the types of things that I think uh, causes the public to have some um, either criticisms or ill feelings about the judiciary. Peter,
1: is there anything you'd want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I focus on a
0: similar, but well, not similar, a very different set of issues, but they get us to the same place. Um, most of the public has very little interaction with the civil justice system because they only find themselves there if there's a wrong that has to be righted or if they're cited with a traffic violation um, or if they're charged with a crime. And obviously, and Dick alluded to this, you know, anytime you're in court, um, half the time someone's going to lose and half the time someone's going to win. And that winning and losing affects one's perception. The vast run of people, however, develop their attitudes toward the judiciary based upon what they read in the newspaper and more so now what they see on, on television. And for better or worse, um, what you see on television uh, doesn't focus on the vast run of cases. It focuses on what is what can be sensationalized, and it's those marginal cases that um, – are outrageous in one respect or another, uh, and so they tend to be publicized and they skew the public's vision. In terms of what you read in the newspaper, there, there's some of that, but there's also a lot of publicity uh, given to the role of, of money and, and potential bias that goes on uh, in races.
1: Do you think that the perception that the public has is more in civil cases or in criminal cases? when they when they view a judge as either being um, biased is it does it happen more often in civil context or does it happen more often in criminal context?
0: I tend to think it happens more often in civil context but I don't have any data that I can support a site to support that proposition
1: well how can some of this be corrected in addition to some of the work that's already been done like education doing some programs what are there any some very specific ways that the public can get a better understanding of the challenges that a judge has to be both fair and and needing to be accountable to the public, but at the same time to be independent? Are there some particular programs that are being
0: considered? I I think there are programs being considered that in the long run should have that impact. Um, The only short-run programs that are out there are the ones that already exist that are designed to educate uh, people about the need for fair and impartial courts and and, the, and to try to educate them that, in fact, judges work really hard every day to be fair and impartial. On, on In the longer term, um, where some of this will come from, uh, there's a proposal under consideration to create uh, what I like to call judge school.
2: Oh, There interesting.
0: There, there are already programs out there designed to educate judges who have made it to the bench. But there is now a proposal being floated around that is uh, somewhat similar to what is done in France, whereby if you're interested in becoming a judge, uh, creating uh, a an educational track that one can pursue uh, to help develop the, the qualification necessary to be a jurist.
1: Is there any um, attempt to maybe sensitize the media to be a little bit better balanced or 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 getting the media to uh, somehow bring a more balanced eye to some of these cases
2: that's a tough one because you know the media's uh goal is to have people watch their shows whether it be the news and or um you know uh 2020 60 minutes and i think that it's pretty clear that how you get people to watch their shows is try to sen- sensationalize uh, what's going on in the courtrooms if that's a court related uh, topic um i i have not found um at least in san diego where i practice the media to be um all that um adverse to the judiciary i think they uh, at least in that conservative jurisdiction where i live uh, they are uh, fair in their reporting um i can tell you in our um in our state, um, judges are appointed by the governor um, versus other states where uh, judges are elected. And so there's a perception, I think, by the media and or by the public that perhaps judges are political in nature. Political in the sense that they're running campaigns and they're no different than someone running for Senate or Congress. And or if they're appointed by the governor, there must be some political Uh, You know, component to that appointment process because how is it you can become a judge? How do you get the governor's endorsement to to appoint you? And I think when dealing with um, the scrutiny of the judiciary, it's really important to educate the public that those are the systems that we have, whether it be election and or appointment. And I think the media uh, plays a role in that as well.
1: Are there any studies being done um, to determine whether we get a better caliber of judge if they're appointed versus elected?
0: There has been some research done on that. I don't believe it is conclusive in one direction or the other.
1: It probably also balances on who is the screening process and what's the nature of the election too, right?
0: Right. I mean, I think the one thing you find is that when you have elected judges, they tend to be wealthier people who can afford the cost of the
2: campaign. And On the other hand, I think uh, those that are appointed, um, it's it's very interesting whether they're they're private civil practitioners and or uh, uh, you know public uh, attorneys in the sense that they they work for the government, whether they be district attorneys, attorney generals, and so you have this dichotomy between civil attorneys who practice law or are trial lawyers versus the public sector attorneys who are appointed. And what drives that appointment process, at least in the state of California, is the sitting governor and or the appointment secretary uh, to that governor.
1: Have you either of you found that the public's view is more critical of federal judges versus their state and local judges? Or have you not noticed in any of the literature and any of the work that you've done that there's any distinction at all?
0: The only distinction that I have ever seen is that the public's view is perhaps more critical of the justices on the Supreme Court of the United States. And, and that's driven by the fact that everything they do is under a microscope.
1: And there's not that many cases that come out, so every case becomes a major uh, vehicle for uh, a scrutiny.
0: And, and every time a justice gets pneumonia, there's speculation about who the replacement might be.
1: For those who want to get more information about some of the work, either that TIPS is doing or that the ABA is doing on this area, what would you suggest that they do, Uh, their websites or their articles that they should consult?
0: Well, they can obviously contact TIPS and and get access to all the great materials that we've put together. Uh, They're free to contact any of us, and we'll get them started. The uh, Standing Committee on Judicial Independence is uh, publicized on the ABA's website, and all the members are there with their contact information. So there are plenty of ways to reach out and either get information or get involved.
1: Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Dick. For more information about tips, please visit www.abanet.org tips. And thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this edition of Legal Tips. We hope you listen to the rest of this special series brought to you by the Tort, Trial, and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association. Legal Tips is produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.